Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. <clears throat> well, good evening, uh, ladies, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, great to be here, and thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, I'm going to take my watch off. They say that in uh, Europe, uh, people wear watches. In Africa, we have time. <laughs> now, what I don't want to do is uh, waste your time. They say since the Big Bang, no one has ever complained about the speech being too short. <laughs> so I'm not going to take up a huge amount of your time this evening. 20 minutes, uh, more or less, that's the aim. And then you can have wine and eat something. So I'm going to spend about 20 minutes talking to you about a few things I've learned in life, things which I reckon uh, can make a difference uh, in your world and in the world in general. First thing, and this comes from a lot of experience of training and having more than 12,000 students in lectures over a period of 20 years, uh, supervising more than 110 masters and PhD students. And I've noticed a number of things about human behavior and about human potential. One thing I've learned is that we are all born, born with the same amount of genius than Leonardo da Vinci or Albert Einstein. I have no doubt about that. But somewhere something goes wrong. <laughs> uh, I reckon that before we even go to school, that about 30% of that genius is robbed by our parents. I remember opening my toys to figure out how they work. My dad thought I was breaking my toys. Uh, he should have bought more toys for me to open to figure out how things work. Then we go to school, another 40% of that genius gone. School is like prison. You wear a uniform, cut your hair short, walk in a straight line, people tell you to sit down, to keep quiet. You don't unlock genius that way. You suppress it. Then you go to university, many of you, and at universities, not Salambosh, of course, <laughs> but... Uh, at some other universities, the little bit of genius that is left is robbed. It's gone. We, we, we take exams, which is a stupid idea. You get 50%, no one can explain why 50%. And so on. Longenhofen said that it took him three years after he graduated to get his common sense back. <laughs> now, <laughs> we don't want that same mistake. That... Uh, you actually just get confused at varsity instead of learning something. So I am, and it's also about what other people think of us and what they say about us and what the expectations are. I remember we're walking, you know, being in the first year chemistry lecture, and the professor came into class, and we were like 350. I later realized why there were so many of us, because he came to the middle and he pointed down the middle and he said, half of you next year will not be there again, and I was very happy not to sit in that half. And then he came to the other half, pointed down that half, and he said, and half of you will be here again next year. And I was trying to figure out what he was saying. Came there from a small little village in the Eastern Cape, and uh, the first time I saw so many people together in one place was like 15,000. I was used to the school concert with 50 people. So it was a major shock to the system. And I'm trying to figure out what he's saying. I thought, well, perhaps he's bragging a bit that he's already a professor in chemistry. I thought you got your first certificate 
when you register successfully at university, it was such a complicated process. And if you find your lecture theater, that was another certificate. So, but I was sitting there, but that's what I actually heard him say. I heard him admit in front of all those young people that he was too stupid to teach us. Because why would he admit me to fail me? Surely that was not my problem, that was his problem. And he was right. Half of the guys were not there the next year, and the other half were there. That's why we were so many the next year. And later on, when I became the chair of the School of Biology at Pretoria University, guess who was reporting to me there? The same person. It was a good day in my life, by the way. <laughs> uh, because I could help him to think a little bit differently about human potential. Because at that time, I had about 10 years' experience of human behavior. What he should have said to us as first-year students is to get to know the people sitting next to you. Because those are the future leaders, the future professors, the future engineers, the future medical doctors, and so forth. Get to know them. Those are significant and important people. That is what he should have said. Because what happens is, he would have created a completely different expectation. And those expectations which people communicate to us often either unlocks our potential as humans or limits it. So the first take-home tonight is constantly raise the expectation. Raise the expectation that you have for yourself and raise the expectation that you have of the people that in fact work with you. It is an unbelievable tool to unlock human potential. Just raise the expectation. People believe what you say about them. If you've got still young children or children at school, Raise the expectation. Communicate the expectation. Communicate that faith in them, and you will unlock the potential in humans. You unlock that genius. That's the first thing. Then, I also realized that we all have at least 10 different intelligences. It's the, it's the multiple intelligence model. And I'm not going to spend time on all of these 10 intelligences because they, we just don't have the time. And I promise you I'm not going to take more than 20 minutes of your time this evening. But... The, uh, the one, uh, and I'm going to run through some of them, the one intelligence is purely what we know. We spend a huge amount of our time getting to know stuff. Most of your school career, and then you go to university, and we think that if we just keep on gathering more information, we're going to get better at living, uh, and that it's going to help. <clears throat> and it does help. It can be limiting, though. I've uh, sort of created a, uh, a phrase... I call this the information focus syndrome, uh, and that is that focusing on just on the information will not make you a better decision maker. It's not going to help you to actually get out of the woods. I'm not saying that information is not important. It is important. I would hate to be in open heart surgery with a doctor that is Googling the next step. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you, you, need, uh, you need that information. What is important, though, is to know that it can be limiting in terms of how you solve problems. Imagine walking into this big castle, uh, you're in the foyer, uh, Anthony is dead, Cleopatra is asleep on the couch, next to Anthony is a container that had a liquid in, it's empty, so what happened there? Now I've done this exercise with thousands of students, thousands, where they write down a question on which I can only answer yes or no to figure out what happened there. And they ask the same questions. Without talking to one another, they ask the same question about poison in the liquid, about Cleopatra killing Anthony, and so forth, and so forth. What actually happened there was that Anthony is a goldfish, and Cleopatra is a cat, and someone bumped over the bowl and he suffocated. 
But the little bit of knowledge that you have of Shakespeare, the immediate association of the names with that of humans influences the way in which we solve that problem, and this is human nature. You must be aware of it, because that will limit you in terms of how you solve problems. Einstein said, you can't get yourself out of a problem with the same mind that got you into the problem in the first place. You've got to get an external view to help you to escape or to solve that particular problem. So a lot of knowledge is good. Being aware that it can limit your ability to solve a problem is even more important because then you can break out of it. And there are many tools. If we had time, I could give you a workshop of a whole day on how do you break out of this paradigm that you get. And I'm going to share just one or two things with you this evening of how you get out of it. Other thing, of course, is... Uh, we have uh, verbal or linguistic intelligence. That's the ability to speak and think at the same time. It's the activity I'm busy with right now. They say after death, this is what people fear most. So I'm having a near-death experience here right now, so you've got to be a little bit empathetic. It's an important uh, intelligence because it's the only way you can figure out what people are thinking, and this is why people fear it, because you're exposing your thoughts. But then you've got how uh, well you're orientated towards your environment. Uh, if you play cricket, you hope that you are well orientated because someone bowls a ball at you at 140 kilometers an hour. If your mind and your head and your arms and so on and the eyes are not coordinated, it is a life-threatening situation. Uh, so you either get out of the way of the ball or you hit it. And then we go on to practical intelligence. This is the people that can do stuff with their hands. Now, unfortunately, in the world, the, 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 the youngsters that go to a technical school or that don't go to university, that go to a FET college or whatever, learning to do things with their hands are often not considered to be as bright. It's a big mistake. You can't be good with your hands and be stupid at the same time because your hands don't have their own mind. It's just a different intelligence. And you can be a genius there. And we need to acknowledge that and we need to give more credit for that. And, and it makes me think of the story of the, uh, the guy that spent 19 years at university to become a, a neurosurgeon, had a blocked drain at his home, got the plumber in to come and fix it. So the plumber arrives, fixes this in 15 minutes, write, writes out an invoice for two and a half thousand rand, and the doctor says, you know what, I spent 19 years at university to become a neurosurgeon. I don't even make this kind of money. So the plumber said, and neither did I when I was a neurosurgeon. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so we, we, we must not underestimate practical intelligence. I, by the way, I believe in the next 15 years, 10 to 15 years, that's where the money is going to be. Those are the people that will have a job, and specifically in South Africa. If you can do anything well in this country, if you're reliable, if you deliver on time, and so forth, you will have more work than what there are hours in a day. There's no doubt about it. If you can paint well, if, you can, if you're reliable, if you do a professional job, you can virtually ask what you want. You'll have more work than what there is in hours in the day. But then we have also creative intelligence, which I reckon is one of the most underrated intelligences in the world. I worked with Edward de Bono for 10 years, started the Institute for Creative Thinking, the Edward de Bono Institute for Creative Thinking uh, with him, and he has been a great mentor, uh, and I have learned a huge amount from this man. 
He taught me a few things about how to break out of paradigms. And he also indicated to me on numerous occasions uh, that people don't think. And he often referred to what I now call the cognitive reserve. The cognitive reserve is the part of the brain that you don't use. It is the part of the brain that is not, not tied into what you know. Cognitive reserve. It, it also takes you into an hypothetical world where you imagine how the world can be instead of accepting the world as it is. And it causes a bit of tension in you as an individual if you live in this hypothetical world because you stand with your one foot in how the world can be and you stand with your other foot in the world as it is. And you, need to, you, need, you know that you need to get from where you are to where the world can be and the only way to get there is not with what you know but to move into this cognitive reserve. But let me give you an indication of why I can state categorically that we don't think or that the clever people even don't think. You look at the keyboard on this computer. That keyboard is not alphabetical. It's QWERTY. It's a QWERT keyboard. They got it right at the top with the numbers, one, two, three, four, to zero, but the rest they mixed up. Why? Why is that thing not alphabetical? It would have helped me, by the way, if that were an alphabetical keyboard. I learned to type the Columbus method, seek and land, seek and land. <laughs> now this is a QWERTY keyboard. Frederick Scholes, in 1875, designed that keyboard for the English language using letter pairing to slow down typing because the mechanical things were jamming. Not to speed typing up, to slow it down. Now you get BlackBerry. When BlackBerry advertise their, their, their phones, they say, and with a QWERTY keyboard, and I want to just cry. It's no wonder these guys are going bankrupt. Because they don't think. Since that time, electricity arrived, computers arrived, Microsoft, Steve Jobs, Apple, and so on. I don't even have a choice. I've got to use the QWERTY keyboard. That is stupid. No one thinks. One way to unlock thinking, by the way, is to ask the question, why? Nothing in this world, by the way, will survive the question, why, five times in a row. I just call that Clutter's natural law of why. Nothing will survive five whys. I will know within five whys why you are here tonight. And why is that important, to ask the question, why? It brings you to principles. It actually is the way to identify paradigms. And if you want to move the world, you change the paradigm. But you, know, you, might, you need to determine what the paradigm is. And the way to get to that paradigm is to ask the question, why? It's a powerful exercise in creative thinking. It is a powerful way to move into the cognitive reserve is to ask the question, why? We can change the world if we ask the question, why, by the way. So that is one tool that stimulates creative thinking. And, and there are many others, and we will not have time to go into all of those this evening. Other very important intelligence out of these ten is emotional intelligence. People often ask me which of these ten intelligences I would regard as the most important. It is undoubtedly emotional intelligence because emotional intelligence drives the other intelligences. It is the intelligence driver. You can have ten PhDs and without emotional intelligence you will be a good example of an educated derelict. So what is emotional intelligence? And there are many good books. I'm sure you guys have read some of these books, Stephen Goldman and so on, on emotional intelligence. Let me give you my version of how I see emotional intelligence. It's realizing that everyone in the world has an emotional bank balance 
All of us here this evening, person next to you, in front of you, behind you, we have an emotional bank balance. And every time you interact with another person, you have a choice to either make a, a withdrawal out of that emotional bank balance or to make a deposit. Now, if you are negative, if you are unfriendly, if you're unthankful, if you don't acknowledge other people, if you are disrespectful, these are good ways of making emotional withdrawals. In fact, people will, would not want to come near you eventually because it will be a negative experience. It will be a high-maintenance draining experience. The opposite to that, of course, is to be thankful, to be respectful, to be friendly. Some people, of course, think that when you get born, you issued with ten smiles, so you should use them sparingly. <laughs> and to acknowledge other people. Acknowledgement, by the way, is the biggest emotional deposit that you can make, according to Maslow and Herzberg and all of these uh, psychologists. But out of own experience, I know this. To acknowledge another person is the biggest emotional deposit you can make. We don't do that well in South Africa, by the way. So we have invented self-acknowledgement because no one else tells us that we're doing reasonably okay. So we've invented that. It works like this with our generation. If I look around the room, for most of us it works like this. Listen carefully when people greet one another. They say, well, hello, man, how are you? No, I'm fine, man. Yes, I'm busy, man. I'm busy. Now, why would you want to tell someone else that you are busy? It's, it's actually none of their business. You're saying indirectly there's a huge demand for me, for my time. I'm important. It's a self-acknowledgement. You just watch their faces if you tell them, I'm fine, man, but you know what? I'm not busy at all. <laughs> and in their mind, it is spinning around, this guy is useless. He's unsuccessful. <laughs> How can it be that you can actually not be in demand? With teenagers, it's a bit different. Those of you that have youngsters between the age of 18 and 25, it works different. The self-acknowledgement already embedded. And they say the following. They say when they greet one another, well, how are you? They say, no, I'm fine, man, but yes, I'm tired. I'm tired. We've got 25,000 tired people every day on campus. Now, why do they say to one another that they are tired? Because they say, you know, I'm having such a good life. I don't get time to sleep. Anton Rupert's father, or Johan Rupert's father, Anton used to tell the story about the uh, walking on the West Coast with an overseas visitor and there was a drum there full of crayfish, overfull in fact. None of these crayfish were falling out of that drum. And the overseas visitor said, well, isn't this fascinating that none of these crayfish are falling out of the drum? So Anton Rupert said, no, there's not a problem. These are South African crayfish. As soon as the one gets to the top, the other one pulls them right down to the bottom. <laughs> so, and that is so true. Because if our rugby or soccer team wins, and thank goodness Bafana won last night, they are heroes. If they lose the next match, everyone's corrupt, fire the coach, fire the steam, and so forth. We've not learned to acknowledge other people. We need to learn that. We need to learn to acknowledge our children because this is how you win, build a winning nation. It's to build the confidence because by acknowledging other people, you build confidence. And we should not only acknowledge those people that we can get anything back from. Where I work here, there's a lady called Carol. Carol is about 45 years old, a colored lady. 
comes by train to work, takes about two hours to get to work, so it gets up early in the morning, takes a taxi from the station, gets to the office. She's there before me at least 45 to an, minutes to an hour before I get there. I walk about five minutes out of an air-conditioned vehicle into my office. Do you think Carol matters? I tell you, Carol matters a lot. Carol is an important person in my life. I need to know what her birthday is. I need to be interested in her. I need to know where many children she has, and so forth. Because she does not have the same perspective, lifestyle, and future that I have. Yet she's there to make sure that I can actually do my job. We have a massive responsibility in this world to acknowledge people like that, which I believe are the cement of society. Some people would walk past them. These people don't even exist. They are like ghosts. That's not the way we would want to be. We want to acknowledge those people. The least we can do is stand for one minute and greet them and ask them how they are today. They get happy, sad, like we do. They don't have the same lifestyle, and they might never have it. The least we can do is to acknowledge those people. So acknowledgement is a very important thing. I want to start ending off. I want to talk to you also a little bit about success and about significance. We all strive to be successful, isn't that so? I've not come across people that have on their wall a vision statement that says, I am striving to be unsuccessful. <laughs> we all want to sort of achieve success. Success, of course, means different things to different people. But sort of in general terms, success means achieving the objectives that you set for yourself. So you set yourself objectives, and by the way, these objectives are important because I could tell you what motivates all of you here tonight. And uh, those are the things which you consider to be worthwhile doing. Those are the things you get out of bed up in the morning. You say, well, I'm out of bed. I am looking forward to this day because there are some worthwhile things that I want to do. If those disappear out of your life, you'll become depressed. You'll get out of bed and you'll say, well, why am I getting out of bed? There's nothing in this day that I'm actually looking forward to. So worthwhile goals motivate us. The pursuit of achieving a worthwhile goal is a strong motivational factor. The problem is eventually you get very good at it. You get good at achieving these goals. It becomes like a game. You set the goal, you achieve it. You set the goal, you achieve it. So eventually you become extremely successful. The question is what lies beyond these goals? What is on the other side of these goals? For me, there are two things there. The, the one is to be happy. The one is happiness. Because you see, happiness gives a context to being successful. What use is it that you achieve all the goals that you set for yourself and you're an unhappy person? It doesn't matter. Those goals don't matter. Even more important is how do you move from being successful to becoming significant? For me, the answer lies in where your main goal is not so much your own goals and how you achieve them, but the goals of other people. What are you doing to help other people to become successful? That is the question. 
You see, when you start focusing on the success of others and not the success of your own, you will look back at your career and you will be happy that you have actually led a significant life. And that's a tough thing. That is a tough thing to do. So emotional intelligence is extremely important. It also has to do with your own value. I mean, if, you had to, if I had to ask you a question tonight, difficult question, what are you worth? Sat with a group of directors of a company, big company in South Africa the other day, and I asked them, well, what are you guys worth? And they said, well, they started quoting their stock exchange shares. I said, no, 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 you are not understanding the question. I want to know what you are worth. I said, well, let me help you. If you don't understand the question, let me help you to understand the question. Ask yourself, who will miss you if you had to die today? If the answer is only my bank manager, then you've got a serious problem. It means you're basically worth nothing. Excepting for whom? For yourself. Most people will be happy when you die, actually. It's one less person who's going to tap something out of me when they walk past me. You see, the way that we need to change the mind is to say, well, how do we become more significant in terms of our lives? When last did you pay someone a compliment? When last did you tell your wife that you love her and that she looks beautiful? You see, we don't do that because we expect our wives to walk out of the Vogue magazine before we say that they are beautiful. And then we walk around the bright face fire with this big bupensa. <laughs> I mean, uh, they deserve to be told on a regular basis that we li like them. It is so easy. You chose to live with her for your life. And, and for women, the same thing applies. You know what? If you don't get acknowledgement as the husband at home, and you get that at work, work will become nicer than to be at home. If you get a beating when you get back home about the light bulb that's not being fixed or the grass that is long or whatever, you'll say, you know what, where I go, I'm a respectable person actually. Where I work, people actually sort of smile, not because they want to, they feel they have to. But at least I get the respect there. So it becomes, you know, like nicer to be at work than what it is to be at home. They, I know that men want to know from their wives that they are okay. Not from other people, their wives. I end off with what brings civilization into this world. We need to be more civil in the world. If you look around you in the world today, it's a pretty much of a mess. So what is civilization? I once uh, recently was in fact in Japan for a, the, uh, and, and I sat there, I went into my hotel room in this beautiful place in Osaka, went into the bathroom after I put down my suitcases and I had one look at this toilet and I realized that this thing is computerized. So there were all these little knobs and I'm sure some of you have been there and seen that, all these little knobs that you can press all with Chinese characters so you can't figure out which one does what. So now I think, well, perhaps I just need to figure out how this thing works before I use it. So I start pushing these buttons. First one switches the radio on in the, in, in, in the bathroom. So eventually out of the third little knob spouts out a fountain this high. And I think to myself, thank goodness I didn't use this thing before I figured out how this thing actually works. So then I thought, oh, this is complicated. I just want to figure out how you flash this thing. 
So eventually none of those knobs actually flush the toilet. The flush little button sits behind the toilet, a little handle you press down. But nevertheless, as I was sitting there, I thought about civilization. I thought, you know, where I grew up on a farm in the northeastern Cape, we were the first generation that had a toilet inside the house. And in fact, I had to fetch a bucket of water and put it next to the toilet because that is how we flushed it. And I thought to myself, That's, what's civilization? I thought to myself, you know, this toilet in China, in, in Japan breaks down. And it, you, you, you found the IT expert to come and reboot the toilet. <laughs> and I just thought, this is crazy. I mean, this can't be civilization. Civilization boils down to one word. One small word. It is about respect. It's about respect for yourself, respect for other people, and for respect for this planet that we share. If we can get this right, we can bring civilization into the world. Because you can be very rich, and if you don't respect other people, you're nothing. Or you can have nothing and respect other people and be something. Respect is a very important word. Why respect? You see, because respect makes life possible. It says you can have a different language, you can have a different culture, you can have a different color skin, but we are sharing this planet. So we better create space for one another to live in this world. And this is why respect is so important. It makes life possible. And then, of course, some people are totally overboard when it comes to finances. We're making money is the only objective they have in this world. And I end up with this little story about this billionaire invited a few guests to his own island and he was talking about his next big project and there was someone sipping a glass of wine in the corner there. And later on these two get together and the guy with the wine said to this billionaire, you know what sir, I've got something you will never have. Now you can imagine what the response was of this billionaire. He said, this is impossible, you tell me what it is, I will buy it. He said, no, 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 no. I've got something you can't buy. I said, well, what, is, what, what do you have? He says, you said, well, I have enough. I've, I have enough. You see, you can't buy enough. But some people don't know where to draw the line. They don't know when enough is enough. So they participate in the rat race. They chase these objectives. They meet these objectives. They become extremely successful. And eventually what happens is they die unhappy, knowing no one. Because they've never come to this balance of deciding when enough is enough. I would more or less estimate that all of us in this room here tonight have already got more than enough. More than enough. When you decide that enough is enough, you become a billionaire, by the way. No one can buy it. That's the time you become the billionaire, is when you know that enough is enough. So, I thank you for your attention. I wish you a successful and a significant and a spectacular life as you move forward into the future. Thank you very much, Gwilwet. Yes, Suya.
interesting, and the question that I posed to the person that, uh, well, another individual is that, what did civilization, okay, wait, <laughs> how did the human race look like before this that has become so important now that we have to focus on it? Well, if you talk about leadership, there are many, many attributes of good leaders. I want to single out three. This is why this has become important. The number one attribute of a good leader is trust. People don't follow people that they don't trust. None of you here will do that. So if you make decisions as a leader, the first question you have to ask yourself is, am I building trust or am I eroding trust? That's, so that's important. Secondly, and this has been a misconception, for many people, leadership is about service. Leaders have no rights. They give up all their privileges. They stand in the back of the line when it comes to everything. They serve. And the third thing is they care. Because if you care for the people that you lead, if you serve them, and if they can trust you, you will enable an organization to go to new places. Every decision you make will either build or erode that trust relationship. People are sick and tired of actually being objects. They've realized that you could work, by the way, a lifetime for an organization. You can spend many, many hours overtime. You can spend many, many weekends away from home and travel overseas thinking that someone is appreciating it. Wake up. No one appreciates it. When you retire the day, when you go away from that organization, they will not say thank you to you properly. And they'll forget you two days beyond. So get out of the rat race. Unless you're enjoying it. If you're really enjoying it, just continue with it. But if you think that you are doing something to impress your boss or other people, it's not going to happen. So people are know this. They know this. And, and you do your work to the best of your ability so that you add more value than what people are paying you. But for the rest, unfortunately, don't expect too much. I mean, but the thing is that the way we engage with, but each, with each other, without, let's say, well, not just always being there in whatever form, has it really changed in, in just the fundamental way we engage with each other? I don't think so, personally. Well, I find it interesting that it's become such an emphasis now, like it's a new, yeah, know, it's a new thing. Yeah, yeah. Because it works. It is because it actually works. If you look at the big leaders, the leaders in the world, let's take a good example in South Africa. Uh, you take a guy like Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela became a world icon as a leader built on three things. Trust. You could have Gaddafi and uh, George Bush sit at the same table with him there, otherwise they wouldn't. They trusted him. Service. And also empathy. The kids would sit and the kids would be all over his lap. And you could see that he didn't bother him. Tabu Mbeki knew that it was important to show empathy and to show that you love kids, but he held them there. Because he was afraid that they would actually mess up his suit. Those things actually say something. There's a problem with our current leader in South Africa. What do you think is the biggest challenge that he has? In fact, quite a charismatic guy and so forth and so forth. But trust. Trust is the problem. If I could advise him 
uh, in any way. And I met one of his wives just two nights ago. Uh, nice person, very much involved in working for cancer, for cancer research and so on. A very, very nice person, young person. I would advise him to actually just work on trust. And, and he knows this. Don't be a fool. He knows that this is the problem. So what he's been doing, he's been overcompensating. And you overcompensate by either not doing anything or trying to please everyone to overcompensate for that lack. You know? So it, he needs to figure out, how will I restore trust? If he can do that, great leader. Great leader. There's nothing going terribly wrong in South Africa, uh, uh, given the, the ups and downs that we have in the world at the moment. But, uh, but trust is key in leadership. And people want that. They're sick and tired of people they can't trust. See, the, the, the question is about culture and interaction and human intelligence, because we all experience this in a bit of a different way. And, and we, I, I had one student, Tendani Navondo. Uh, he was a vendor. Uh, uh, student. And Dendani would show uh, respect in, a, in an interesting way. He would, for instance, come to my office and then uh, I would open the door. The door was already open and I invite him in and then he would knock on the open door in my presence before he entered. I always wondered, why is he knocking on the door? I mean, the door is, the door is open. I've invited him in. Yet he knocks. It's respect. It is his way of his culture's way of showing I'm entering into your space now and I respect that. Other people will show this in a different way. But the principally easier is to be sensitive towards the cultures of other people. To not be judgmental, but to in fact treat them with respect, to, teach one, to treat one another with respect. And try and figure out how different people do this in their own cultures. Because something might actually, we think you might even in some cases be sort of uh, think that, well, this is weird. It's part of the culture. But respect is the key to, to building a, a stable and a, a civil society. And the, the media shows us a lot of examples which are not good. The role models in the world at the moment are actually not good. I want to show one example is uh, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton made a mistake because people at some point just didn't trust him because he cheated his wife and he in fact said, well, I didn't cheat my wife and then they caught him out. What Bill Clinton should have done, the first time that this hit the press, he should have said, listen guys, big mistake. I made a huge mistake. Judgment error, I apologize. Because statistics show that six out of ten Americans cheat their partners. So they would have respected him for his honesty and they would have said, well, this guy's just like me. Six out of ten would have said, well, this guy's just doing what I'm doing. So at least they would see him as an honest person, isn't that so? But now he cheats his wife and he lies. That doesn't build trust. <laughs> then you say, well, no, no, this, this guy, hey, well, well, you know, I, at least I'm honest. But this guy cheats his wife and he's, and he's dishonest. It's, it's a tough thing for leaders to admit their mistakes, to ask for forgiveness, which is another good attribute of a leader, by the way. No one's perfect in this world, no one. We all make mistakes. Nothing wrong with making a mistake. Acknowledge it, ask for forgiveness, and people will forgive you because no one's perfect. It's when you don't ask for forgiveness. That's where the problem is. Yes? So how do you handle those leaders that uh, don't ask for forgiveness? They just carry on uh, trying to keep the ground 
Okay. Yep. I don't have to worry about them. The law of natural consequences takes care of them. Because when you get into a leadership, people often get into a leadership position because of their personal attributes. Get voted in because of their, who they are, their personal, I don't like the word power, but let's just call it power for a little while. Then they get into a leadership position. With a job comes new powers which has got nothing to do with who they are. They suddenly have to make decisions which has got nothing to do with who they are. I'll give you an example. When I became dean of the faculty of science, I suddenly had to decide which students I would readmit to the university and which I wouldn't readmit to the university. That had nothing to do with who I was before I entered into that position. Now, it's how you deal with that positional power that will make you lost beyond the position or make you not lost beyond that position. Now, you can take the leaders in the world, Muatma Gandhi, you can take it, someone like Nelson Mandela, Thabo Mbeki, uh, and so on. There's a whole range of Adolf Hitler and so on. Many of them will not survive their positional power. The true mark of a leader is where they are as popular after they leave the position of power as when they were in it. That's the true mark of a leader because it means they don't abuse the position of power. So I don't have to worry about those guys. They will hang themselves. Leaders in a position that with, comes with power that abuse that power will hang themselves. So the law of natural consequences takes care of them. Mandela lasted. He outlasted that position. Tarbenbeke didn't. His own party got rid of him during that position. I think it was unfair, but whatever. He couldn't actually outlast his position. And a lot of other people, no one thinks fondly of Hitler in the world. And you can go through all of these leaders. And then you can say, well, what attributes did they have? You take Mahatma Gandhi. What attribute did he have that stood out? He was not for violence. He was totally against violence. And he had a huge amount of integrity. His principles were stronger than anything else. He was prepared to die for what he believed in. And if we had time, we could run through all of these leaders and you could take out these attributes of made them, which made them survive their position and those that didn't make it. What, and often, most often, it's abusing the position of power that they are in that make them fail. Right. Thank you. Thank you.